Welcome back to Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers where we take an inside look at the books transforming our lives and shaping the world. I'm your host, Drew Dick. I'm an editor and author, and I am super psyched about our guest today. She really is the perfect guest for our podcast because we're all about reading and writing, and that's what she's all about too. So I'm excited to welcome uh, Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, as she's known to some on social media, the notorious KSP. I think that's an allusion to the notorious BIG, <laughs> which I guess is apt. They're both word people. So that works. She is an English professor and uh, a prolific author. Her books include Fierce Convictions, uh, which is a biography of the abolitionist and reformer Hannah Moore, uh, and On Writing Well, which I'm midway through and absolutely loving right now. And she just released a beautiful series of classics that include a guide and insights, um, Sense and Sensibility, Heart of Darkness, very familiar uh, titles to uh, most of us. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Drew. Thank you for being on, especially right now. And I want to, before we get into the questions that I have for you, I figured we should probably address the elephant in the room, and that is that we are in the middle of a global crisis uh, with the coronavirus pandemic unfolding. So I guess my first question for you is, how are you holding up and what does your life look like uh, right now? Well, so far for me, it's been so good. Um, this is first week of the, you know, the social distancing and the self quarantines that the government is asking us to do or falls on my spring break. So um, right. I'm actually doing what I normally do on <laughs> spring break, which is hunker down with a book or a laptop, reading, writing, running, uh, went fishing. Um, that's the different thing is because my husband is a public school teacher. He usually doesn't have spring break when I have it. And so um, he's home because their schools are closed as well. So we actually have a week together, which is rare. And I went fishing with him yesterday. And um, but it's not all it's not all fun in games because um, because I am in the midst of uh, trying to figure out how to put my courses online when we start sure. classes again next week, which is a huge challenge for me. Uh, and we do have my um, my elderly parents um, live uh, on our property with us. And so I've had to um, kind of <laughs> instruct them and, and rein them in a little bit because they wanted to kind of go up about their lives as ordinary. And <laughs> yes. uh, we're not letting them do that. So I'm go going to make a store run for them this afternoon. <laughs> So that's yeah, no kidding. It's it, I had a similar experience with my parents. They live about an hour and a half from me, uh, but they're getting up there. They're in their early 70s. And at first they just kept saying like, oh, this is kind of scary. We're worried about your kids. And I'm like, mom, don't be worried about the kids. I don't want to be rude, but you got to think about yourself. Uh, far higher risk category. Right. And uh, it's funny, too, with the quarantine. At first, I was kind of like, you know what? This doesn't sound so bad. I, I don't mind. I already work from home. Uh, but just kind of, you know, hunkering down and and reading some good books and watching some movies. And then I had a disturbing realization. We have three little kids and we're going to be <laughs> in the house with them for who knows how long. Uh, so we're trying to be creative and have fun with it. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, hey, I I love, love that you are such a champion for reading um, and for good books. Uh I have this unusual experience that when this happened to me a few times, when I tell people what I do for a living, that I'm in publishing, that I'm an editor and author, 
I've had a lot of people respond that they just kind of blurt out that I don't read. And I don't know what, what that's about. Maybe they're trying to stick it to me. Uh, maybe they're looking, maybe it's a confession of sorts and they're hoping for some absolution. I don't know. Um, and I always don't know how to respond. I'm kind of like, oh, cool. You know, whatever, you know, you do you. Um, I'm just curious, how would you respond to someone like that that just doesn't really see the need for reading in their life? Well, remember, I teach college. I encounter such people every day. (laughs) 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 Um, And, you know, it's, it's interesting because it does, of course, sort of break my heart because reading is such a gift to me. And I just love it so much and have my whole life. But if we take kind of a big picture view and think about the age of literacy as it has existed for about 500 years, um, you know, when for a while, very few people could read. And then because of the Protestant Reformation, largely, then, you know, literacy spread, printed material spread. And there were a few hundred years when when most people in the Western world could read and did read. But that's really all there was to do during leisure time. Um, So there weren't all these other choices of watching film and scrolling Twitter and and sports, the sports ball and um, t- on yes. television. So our leisure time is, is, you know, is filled with so many different options. I guess in some ways, it's no wonder that people don't read as much anymore as they did 100 or 200 years ago. But that's why I'm a champion for it. And that's why I'm glad you are as well. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Just the proliferation of options that we have of different sort of media competing for our time. Uh, but yeah, I do appreciate that, that, that it, there are um, such advantages, though, to reading, you know, just both, I think, just from a personal perspective and a spiritual one. Um, it, and it seems like there has been a renewed interest, uh, even among evangelicals recently, in the virtues in the virtue tradition, uh, which to some of us, especially like in the, the context that I grew up in, talk about virtues would sound very Catholic and not mm. universal, but I mean like Catholic church <laughs> um, to us. But it seems recently there's been this kind of fluorescence of of interest and, and literature on uh, virtues. And of course, your book on reading well fits right in with that. And I just love how you look at great literature, these classics, and and look at the examples of virtue in those. Um, but you also connect reading itself to virtue. And I'll just read the quote here for listeners. You write, there is something in the very form of reading, the shape of the action itself, that tends toward virtue. I was wondering if you could explain that for us a little bit. Yeah, thanks for picking out that that um, quote, which I is really does get at the heart of the book. And, um, you know, it does, it, it seems like maybe an odd connection it did as I was thinking through and writing it to take great works of literature and connect them to virtues. But that connecting point really is practice. Um, and this actually connects to your opening question about people not reading. Um, you know, 10 years ago, when I was teaching, my problem wasn't really so much, or, you know, maybe a little further back 15 years ago, it wasn't about getting students to read because they did read. Um, but it was getting them to read uh, more widely to read a lot of things to read challenging things to not just read, you know, pardon, but just Christian, <laughs> Christian books. Yes. Um, but 
but now with people reading less, they're kind of losing the ability and skill to read. It's getting harder to read. Um, and so they, it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then they just, you know, don't read because it's hard to read. And virtue is really the same way in the understanding given to us by many thinkers, but in particular, I draw heavily on Aristotle, who, um, who who talked about virtue as being uh, a behavior, a habit that becomes a practice that then becomes so much a part of our character that we actually don't have to think about it anymore. But it begins mm-hmm. with habit, just as reading is a habit. And so both of them are linked that way. Um, but this many of the of the virtues that um, that we would want in a person like patience and diligence and um, intellectual virtues and wisdom and prudence, a lot, all of those things actually are required to read well and increase as we do read more and more and read better. Absolutely. I've seen it even in my own children. <laughs> I mean, just comparing their behavior mm-hmm. uh, after they've read for 20 minutes versus watched a movie for 20 minutes. <laughs> mm. That's just anecdotal, but my goodness. Yeah. I think it does do something. Yeah. For our, just our attention spans, uh, perseverance, patience. It takes a lot of concentration. Uh, and then of course, not just to read, but to read well, uh, astutely being observant. Uh, that's huge. Uh, we evangelicals, I, I hope this isn't too general, but I think we're often guilty of reading and writing works of fiction that are really transparent vehicles for a Christian message or moral, you know, and Mm -hmm. often this looks like pretty bad art, right? (laughs) I mean, we make some pretty bad (laughs) films and books. Okay. Yes. Okay. The secret's out. Yes. (laughs) The secret's out. There's, there's the Amish romance. There's the cheesy football movies. I won't name names, but, um, (laughs) but you know, some people just go, Hey, listen, it it doesn't really matter because they have a great message, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, this is even leading people to Christ. This is uh, uh, sharing the gospel with folks that may not otherwise encounter it. Um, but you advise against that sort of overtly kind of preachy um, uh, art. Uh, yes. Why is that? Why, why do you take that tack? Okay, I'm going to try to not make this into a whole hour-long <laughs> lecture. <laughs> um, but it's such an important and good question. And uh, to boil it down to its essence, um, you cannot separate form from content. Um, to echo the famous 20th century communications theorist Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. And so if we... If we if we try to present a an important message, a gospel message, a message of truth, a message of 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 about the human condition and moral consequences, if we present a message like that in a shallow, superficial, cheesy mm. way, then we are giving a lie about the significance and depth of that truth. Um, another way of, of thinking about it is the incarnation. Um, you know, that, that God exists and he get, reveals himself through his word, but it's not just words. It's also the embodied word, the incarnate Christ who came and dwelled among, among us in order to show us what 
you know, the connection between truth and love and how they cannot be separated. Um, and so, I mean, just like we don't go to an art museum to see what a bowl of fruit looks like. I mean, when we go to an art museum and see a painting of a bowl of fruit, it's not like, oh, that's, oh, that's a bowl of fruit. We actually are looking at the, the, what the artist saw and how he portrayed what he saw and how he used the medium of paint and light and texture to imitate this real thing for our delight and for his delight. And there's just so much theology in that understanding of God's creation and our own creations um, that we just it's it's a very it's the essence of christianity to think mm. about the importance of form and content together and not just the message but the medium as well that's so good yeah how how am i going to argue with that you went right back to the incarnation that is so true though um i love that and and yet i, I don't want to put words in your mouth that's not to say though that that our art shouldn't have some sort of ultimate purpose or overriding objective because i think of the great art of you know the medieval period that where, where people were trying to portray the glory of god or things like that right so and then on the other end of the spectrum maybe you could have arts for art's sake that can be like i'm thinking of dadaism and mm -hmm. the kind of nihilistic uh art where there is no purpose and it's almost like they're, they're militant against having any sort of purpose to your art where do you fall on that spectrum yeah, no, that that's a really good point. And I think I, I think I would take religious art and kind of put it in its own category because it serves a certain function and purpose. Um, you know, so the art that we find in the cathedrals and and hymnody and those things are 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 meant for worship. And then there's art that's meant to be sort of just human expression and creation. And I I would say just like virtue, um, the truth and, and the virtue is in, in the middle. So we might say mm -hmm. that, that the world, the worldly philosophies and Hollywood blockbusters emphasize form only. They emphasize just the pizzazz or the, you know, the cutting edge or the technology and the message doesn't matter at all. And Christians, on the other hand, especially evangelicals, will tend to focus on the message and it doesn't matter how good... The art is because it's got a good message to it. Both of those are wrong. Again, both mm. matter. Um, form matters um, because skill and craft are important. And the message matters because something is either true or not true. It's significant or it's not significant. And that's not to say that every single thing that we enjoy has to be great art, um, but we should know what its function and purpose is and it should ful fulfill that function and purpose well. Thank you. Yes, that's that's very well said. Um, okay, my next question, I have to give our listeners a little trigger warning first, because if you like to keep your books pristine, unmarked, this next quote from Karen is going to offend you. Okay, I'm just going to say it. And I'm going to read this. <laughs> I think you know what's coming, Karen. <laughs> she writes, so. <laughs> the idea that books should not be written in is an unfortunate holdover from grade school, a canard rooted in a misunderstanding of what makes a book valuable. The true worth of books is in their words and ideas, not their pristine pages. Karen, I guess my question for you is how do you sleep at night knowing that you are encour <laughs> <laughs> encouraging the destruction of so many books? <laughs> Oh my goodness. It's yes, this this just drives me crazy. This idea that books are supposed to be be um 
just blank <laughs> pages <laughs> with, well, I guess just one person's words on them. Um, but I will say, I, I actually, I will, I will give the counterpoint because after this book came out, it wasn't until after this book came out, and I've had a number of debates about that point, that it, so, I don't remember who brought this up, but I got, you know, I, I got it back because someone talked about folding <laughs> the pages Ooh, Fold, that's, and that's too I, far. I do. I, that is too far. I, I do think folding <laughs> the pages is wrong. So, um, so I had to think about that. I had to think about why I'm such uh, an advocate for writing in books, but not folding the pages. But I think because <laughs> there is a dis difference, right? I mean, books are the words on the page are simply you know signs and symbols of letters and words and ideas um and so when we mark in them when we add our own words next to them or our underlines or um you know our, our asterisks or check marks um then we really are engaging in a conversation with that writer which is really what right. books are for um and so I do really think that so many of us are hesitant to that because most of the reading that we did early in our lives was from textbooks that did not belong to us. And so we couldn't sure. write in them. Um, and, and I do want to ask people not to write in books that are not theirs. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess advice. I own, yeah, I own so many books and they are part of me. And so um, I, I just can't imagine not writing in them. And I, I encourage right. people to, to give it a try if they, if they have. Yes. Yet. No. And I'm, I'm teasing because I totally agree <laughs> with you. I mean, and I agree with you too, that the, the folding is getting too crazy, but um, <laughs> I recently, I had a guy actually last week come up to me with my book and it was all jacked up and he had little tabs in it and everything. And I just embraced him and wept in his arms. No, I, but I was very grateful. <laughs> it was awkward. Yes. Um, because you go, oh my goodness, someone, first of all, it's like they really did read it. It's not like if it's pristine, it probably means they didn't even crack it open, right? Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, they engaged with it, put their own thoughts in there uh, and their notes. And that's just a huge honor, I think, right. as an author, right. when you see that someone has engaged your work like that. Now, of course, there there are ways to take this too far. I this was like a couple months ago. I don't know if you saw this online, but some dude was showing pictures of how he transports these classic books and he cuts them right in half, like, um, by the, like, right in the I middle did of the spine. See that. Did you, I did, <laughs> did see that. that. I did see that. I mean, obviously I, a sociopath, I right? Lock that dude up. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. He's a book serial killer. Um, it was hilarious because people were like, Hey dude, have you heard of a Kindle? Like, <laughs> right, right. Oh, oh anyway funny. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Now I want to talk a little bit about your process because what we do in this podcast, we talk about great books. We talk about how they can be portals to, you know, new worlds and transformation, but we also, uh, just like to talk to our favorite authors about how they became writers and what their process is like. So my question for you is when did you first have that realization where you said, you know what, I want to be a writer? Mm. Well, you know, it, I love that question because um, because I was always a reader first, and I still consider mm. myself a reader first. I just loved reading, and when I was, you know, eleven, twelve, teenager, I dabbled in some poetry that you know, kid 
childish poetry. Um, Can you read some of that for us right now, Karen? uh, No, nope, I cannot. (laughs) I I think some of it exists somewhere um, still. Um, I'll have to dig that out sometime, but most of it is where it should be. But um, and then (laughs) then when I um, I was in college, I I you know, wrote for and my senior year was editor for the literary journal. Um, But I, I still really, I didn't dream of becoming a writer. I didn't really plan to be a writer. I loved literature. I went right into a PhD program to study literature at the graduate level. Um, And there is where I figured out I wanted to teach. I, that was, that's another story. Um, But the only things I really thought about writing, um, at, at that point, I would say in, in college, in grad school, um, were, were opinion pieces. The kind I do write a lot of those still today. Um, huh. I thought so, I dreamed someday of becoming a, a columnist, um, like George Will, <laughs> who yes. was my hero. Um, but that still didn't, I didn't think of myself as being a writer. Um, and I went on to become a professor and, and uh, taught for a number of years and did not published my first book until I was 47 years old, which is kind of old, I think. <laughs> no, I love that. I think too few people are doing that. Some people want to rush right into publishing a book when they're like 27 and it's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's refreshing. Yeah. Um, and so now, yeah, now I'm, I'm, I'm developing myself as a writer, I would say, and becoming a writer. I guess I am one, but um, it's still... <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go on a limb here and, and say that you are a writer. That's... <laughs> no, I, 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 I am, yes. Um, but it's been, it was funny. been a slow thing, and it was not something that I pursued primarily my entire life. But my love of words... It, it, they, it that goes together. If you are if you love words, then you immerse yourself in that world one way or the other, and that's what my love is words. Yes, and and another thing that I find so refreshing about that response is that you're emphasizing being a reader before being a writer, and I am continually amazed at how many people want to be writers, authors, even like writing books without first being serious readers. Right. Uh, that may just be a little professional pet peeve I have, but there it is. Well, we I encounter that in the college classroom as well. Um, and there is a difference, I would say, between being an author and being a writer uh, in the sense right. that some people just have want that title. I want to be a published author. And that does not mean that they are necessarily a writer because writers write whether they're published or not. Mm. Yeah, so true. Um, well, how does your role as a professor and you, you know, this was almost by the sounds of it, prior to your calling as a writer, how does your role as a professor, standing in front of a class constantly, interacting with students, how does that inform your writing process? You know, it is everything to my writing process because, um, you know, sometimes people will ask me, have, have I've ever thought of, you know, just becoming a full-time writer and speaker because I do, you know, a lot of that. And, um, Number one, I think I would drive myself crazy being in my head all day long, every day. Uh, but number two, the the classroom is is the incubator for my ideas and my thoughts. And um, so much of what I put into my books on on reading well, um, my first book, book literature in the soul of me. Um, in particular comes from my classroom teaching and my conversations with students and discussing ideas and, and great literature and their application in life. And so I just don't even know that I could be 
the writer that I am or any kind of writer at all if I didn't have this first role as a, a professor um, or even just anything outside of writing from which my ideas are, you know, are being pulled and, and being birthed um, because my, my head is just on its own is not that great a space. Um, I need the world of ideas and interaction with other people um, and uh, processing them in that kind of environment for them to germinate and become things I can put on the page. That's great. It makes so much sense too, because you get to field test uh, ideas and have conversations that, that fuel your thinking. I've heard similar um, ideas from pastors who talk about, mm. you know, they preach on a topic and they can see in real time the the responses uh, of people and which messages resonated. And that really uh, contributes to the writing process. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And speaking of the writing process, I'm wondering if you have any weird routines or uh, <laughs> quirky <laughs> writing habits <laughs> that you can share with us. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't um, – I will so often get asked about my process and I don't have any kind of – you know, interesting process. I don't think it's, it's painful for me as it is for most writers. I know. Yes. Well, it's, some enjoy the writing process. I actually hate the most. I, I love the research part and then I love the, um, the editing part, but the, everything in the oh, middle. Wow. Of, okay. Yes. That's <laughs> putting, unusual. Yeah. <laughs> putting the words on the page, that part is extremely painful for me. So, um, right. so that, so, the thing I think so related to that, it's the quirkiest thing that I have probably is that after I've done that really painful part, which is like getting junk on the page, getting it in order and it having some sort of a shape where I can, when I can get to the part that I love, which is editing, refining, improving, sculpting, then I, that other chunky part is all single space. And mm. when that's done and I'm ready to do the fun part, I double space it and <laughs> in my word document. And so that to me, that's a state I'm like, I'm in, I just double spaced it. And like, and then the fun begins. Okay. I'm not going <laughs> to sugarcoat it. That's weird. That's <laughs> is it? It so, seems yeah. so. <laughs> I, now, what's what's is there a rationale behind that of of starting single space and then is that sort of a little reward that you you kind of double space it and then all of a sudden it's it's able to breathe or something? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I, I think because uh, that's a good question um, because when I'm drafting something and and it's and I'm putting the big ideas down and putting them in order, I, I need it single space so I can see more of it. Uh, you know, I can, uh, yes. I can move things around and I hate that part is just hard for me. I don't, I like the part where I can really refine my sentences and my word craft. Um, and so I know when I'm ready to get to that sentence and paragraph level, then I double space. I, I, 
Yeah, I didn't think it was that weird, but anyway, I'll just take your word for it that it's weird. I, well, I, I did think it was a little weird, and I'm so glad that you had something that was a little unusual to share with us about your writing process. I'll, I'll have to give it a it's go myself. It's not very exciting. And- it's not very exciting. It's not like, right. you know, it's not like standing I have on your three hand shots. Or, yeah. Of, I, yeah, I have three shots of bourbon before I start. No, I wish I were that exciting. That might get things flowing, but yes. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Well. This is, I'm sure, uh, a question you run into a lot. Um, you know, someone comes to you and says, I want to be an author. How do I do it? What, what's your advice to aspiring? Uh, well, I, I was going to say writers. I guess we've differentiated writing and writers and authors. But someone who wants to eventually uh, communicate through the medium of the written word, um, what's your advice to them? Well, it's one thing we've already discussed, which is read. Um Yes. Another thing is to not just read in general, you know, read widely, but to read the kinds of things, the kinds of authors and publications where you would like to see your work. Um, so if you don't know the people that you would be writing for, the people who write the kinds of things that you hope to write, then then you you know, you can't, you can't write and publish in a vacuum like that. So you have to read widely, read the kinds of things, you know, like I said, I, I started out wanting to be the next, you know, George Will. Well, that's because I read George Will. Um, uh, and I wanted to be like him. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, for your younger listeners, I'm sure you have no idea who George Will is, but he's still out there. Look him up. Um, he is. <laughs> And uh, so it's it's reading, but also becoming part of that community where you would like to write. And often we talk about that as platforming and networking, and and those are words that work. But it really is about becoming part of that part of a community. Mm-hmm. Um, and reading those things, I will often get people ask me. They will say that they have written something, and they want to know where they can publish it. And I want to say, and I, but I try to be nicer than this. I want to say, (laughs) if you don't know where your kind of writing should be published, then you need to read more because Mm. how do I know? You know, you, you should be reading the kinds of places where you want to be published. If you're writing poetry, you should be reading poetry journals. If you're writing movie reviews, you should be reading outlets that publish movie reviews um, because to not to do so is ultimately, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it could, it's prideful and arrogant. It's as though you just want to kind of deliver your words from on high without engaging in the conversation that other people are having. Um, and so, you know, so become part of that community. Don't be off on so your, true. on your own. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can tell people at, you know, with my background in, uh, magazine uh, publishing and, and websites, you know, people often think, well, I've got this great piece of writing and I know it's, it doesn't fit your editorial grid, but it's just so good that you're going to publish it anyway. <laughs> and, and honestly, that just almost never happens because it's like, it may be great, right? But if it doesn't mm-hmm. kind of fit the tone and the genre of what a certain publication is looking for, uh, yeah, it's probably not going to happen. So yeah, definitely that's kind of a cart before the horse scenario be familiar enough with these publications to know which ones you you want to contribute to. Um, that's great. Hey, this is a segment now that I'm going to transition to that we call the big picture. And basically, we zoom out and discuss a topic related to what we've just been discussing. 
and we've been talking about reading and writing. And so I guess the question that I wanted to pose to you here and discuss with you is this, is the internet destroying our brains? Um, (laughs) Just a a, a little casual question. A little casual question. You should be able to knock it out in three minutes. Um, No, but we, in, in a way, we're reading more than ever, right? I mean, when you, mm-hmm, when you, mm-hmm. if you added up all the texts and tweets and scrolling that we do and the time that we're on Facebook and online, uh, there's a lot of reading being done. Uh, at the same time, of course, uh, we've seen a lot of um, studies uh, that are quite alarming about how the internet is shrinking our attention spans uh, and, and kind of uh, encouraging not deep reading, but scrolling uh, and skimming. Um, so yeah, I guess the question is how can we be good readers? How can we kind of protect our ability to read in the internet age without becoming a hermit and totally disconnecting from the oh. internet? <laughs> right. Well, I, you know, I, I cite uh, ample research on this in, um, the introductory chapter and on reading well, so I won't rehash it all here, mm. but just that there there's research that demonstrates pretty convincingly that the kind of reading that we do on screens in, you know, digital reading, both the form and the content, um, uses our different parts of our brain and uses our brain differently than reading that we do in a book. Um, the research is out there. And so you, there's a, you know, The Shallows by Nicholas Carr is a great book. Yes. Um, Reader Come Home by Marianne Wolf is another one. Um, cognitive scientists and have done a lot of research on this. Um, but just simply accepting that, realizing that there are different kinds of reading and that one reading is not the same as the other. One is reading for information. I read, I do that a lot, but that's skimming news feeds, skimming newspapers, mm. articles. And then there is, you know, deep, immersive, reflective, spiritual reading. And I, I can tell you that because I grew up in, you know, one part of my life was before the internet and before the digital age. And now I'm immersed in that it is very difficult to make the switch. Like it's hard. I, my attention, my own attention span has narrowed. It's hard for me to pick up a book and not look at my Twitter feed every 20 minutes or more. Um, And so I experience it anecdotally. The research shows it's true. So we have to know it's not the same. And so we have to be intentional about exercising those other sorts of muscles in our brains and using our brain differently um, and not counting that kind of quick skimming digital reading as the same kind of deep spiritual immersive reading that we know we need to do with with good books. And in particular, of course, the good book, the Bible. Um, yes. We need we as Christians need to preserve and cultivate that ability to, to read deeply and reflectively. Our, our faith is centered on that idea. Um, and the church uh, depends on it, it. You know, we will be certain kinds of Christians or not be certain kinds of Christians based on our ability to do that. Um, and we have to recognize that or else this literate, age that I talked about at the beginning of the program that's been around for about 500 years will transition into something else. And I don't think we want that. I think we want to preserve this gift of literacy that the church brought the world and to us. Amen. No, I love that. And that's so true. The church has been instrumental in reading from the beginning. Um, The Christians didn't invent the book or the codex, but they popularized it. And then like you've mentioned, 
the you know Gutenberg and the Protestant Reformation uh, was responsible for the widespread literacy, um, and we're in the middle of another uh, communication uh, revolution. And, and that's such a great point about how they're different kinds of reading. You know, you can't just kind of skim around online and think that you've, okay, I've done my reading for the day. They're different animals. Uh, and yes, uh, going to the point of scripture reading, let's face it, the Bible is a big, well, it's 66 books. Uh, and, and some of those books are pretty big and intimidating and difficult to read if we're being honest. Um, especially when you've been conditioned by the immediate gratification that you get so often from social media and other forms of media than to dive into Leviticus. I mean, right. that can be a slog, right? And yet, right. and that's why, that's one of the cases I make for reading. I go, well, you may not want to read, you know, this book or that book, but if you're a believer, you should be in your Bible. You know, I don't want to be legalistic Larry here, but uh, it's kind of important. <laughs> and, uh, and and that's where reading obviously is is really important. Um, I, our theme for this season of this podcast is loving and serving your neighbor. And of course, we started this season uh, back before this whole global pandemic hit, but it just seems more timely now than ever, even if it is also more difficult. Uh, but Karen, I'm curious if you could, and I'm putting you on the spot, I realize, but if you could tell us about one tangible way that you've been able uh, recently to show love. Uh, to a neighbor in your life? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we live out in the country in a rural area. And so, um, you know, we being a neighbor here, I mean, being a neighbor can mean the same thing in everywhere, but it also can have different manifestations depending on where you live. And, um, and, you know, we, I think serving and loving our, our literal neighbors here often has to do with like checking in on them or, or mm. uh, sharing a fence line or letting our neighbors use our barn, which we do for their horses. Um, and then even extending, you know, past the literal neighbor a little bit. Again, I think the greatest gift that God has um, blessed me with is is this country home that I that I love and it's sort of my refuge and my castle so to speak but mm. um, I do try to offer it um, as a, a hospitable hospitable place and often that is for uh, my students whether it's having a class over or um, you know at a holiday time when I learn of a student who is uh, you know, ho not able to go home or doesn't have a home to go to having them out here or just um, sometimes they like to just come and play with the dogs or <laughs> sit on the porch. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a way I try to serve them with uh, as as neighbors uh, in, in a different sense with um, one something that God has blessed us with. So I think that's probably the, the way that I would think of first. That's awesome. And, I, and I'll just say too, um, even though we've been bashing on the internet, uh, the way that you uh, engage online, uh, I'm thinking primarily through Twitter, you're just incredibly gracious with your time um, responding to people uh, and serving folks. And so that's great to see. I'll, I want to encourage our listeners, if you don't follow Karen, uh, check her out, especially on Twitter. She's a pleasure to, uh, to follow and interact with. 
Um, and thank you, Karen, so much. This has been a, a fascinating conversation, at least for me. Um, I appreciate this was a short notice thing. You agreed to be on the podcast, uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful. Um, I want to also encourage listeners uh, to head over to uh, Amazon, or better yet, you know, some independent indie bookstore like Hearts and Minds, uh, and pick up a copy of On Reading Well. We've referenced it several times in this episode, but it's really just a beautiful book, inside and out. The cover's amazing, um, and and it, it's just a classic, and it's something, trust me, you will thank us for. Uh, so grab that. Good time to read a book, too. Obviously, most of us are, are uh, this is going to air in a few days, so I'm sure the situation will not have changed. It will probably mm-hmm. still be stuck indoors. Uh, so this might be a good time to to kind of curl up with a good book. Um, and I just want to reiterate, uh, you know, I'm so thankful for the the exhortation to be readers, especially as Christians, because we need to be in our Bibles. We need to be reading God's word. And I think we have to be immersed in the writings of thoughtful and faithful Christians uh, from past eras and from our own time as well. When I think back on my spiritual journey, there are so many books that are almost like signposts, both fiction and nonfiction, that were incredibly formative for me. Um, and, and I hate to think of what my life would have been like and would be like going forward without those influences in my life. Um just understanding who God is, who we are, your calling through uh, great books that you read. So reading's a huge part of that. And I think it has just a, an enriching and, and even sanctifying effect in the life of a Christian. So Karen, thanks again for joining us. I want to tell our listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, and I know you did, um, please head over. This, this is one way you can really help us out. Head over to Apple or Google Podcasts and leave a review or a rating. I mean, even if you just say, hey, good podcast, it doesn't have to be fancy. <laughs> or you could say, Drew told me to write this. I don't care. That's great. It really helps us. It bumps up the algorithm or something. I, I won't try to pretend to understand that, but it, do, it does help. Uh, and like I've promised before, you will receive rewards in heaven. Uh, not necessarily, but um, I want to encourage you too to stay safe out there. Stay home. Wash your hands. Think of ways at the same time that you can love your neighbor, even if it's from a distance, even if it's you know delivering a meal leaving it on their porch (laughs) and not coming in uh, to expose them potentially. Uh, And like I said, grab some great books, settle into your favorite chair, and we'll ride this thing out together. Uh, Join us next week. We'll be back with another episode. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, But until next time, thanks for joining us and keep reading.